back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And today, I'm so happy to introduce my guests here, which are Nick Porter and Dominic Duduani of Drinking Horn Games. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on, man. Yeah, so you have delivered to the world your sagas of Midgard RPG. Tell me uh, about what is going on with this Kickstarter here. Well, the Kickstarter launched in February of 2018 and was funded in 90 minutes. So to go back a little bit, Sagas was actually originally sort of a drunken bar boast, the (laughs) same way that when you're sitting around with your friends, somebody inevitably says, we should start a band. You and I should uh, start a bar. We had had a couple of beers over pizza. We were talking about what we did and didn't like about other RPGs. And we said, you know what, man? We should make our own game. So about a year and a half later, we brought that to Kickstarter. We funded in 90 minutes. We hit almost 10 times our funding goal. Um, All of that went back into the book, and we actually launched two months earlier than we had scheduled on the Kickstarter in December of 2018. Uh, Since then, the reception has been really positive. Uh, We are working on getting into game stores with our distributor, Indie Press Revolution, Revolution, and we actually just hit bestseller status on DriveThruRPG. Dude, that's incredible. Yeah, it's been a much bigger reception to our first game than I ever could have imagined. Let's go back to that barroom conversation, because I love those types of conversations. What were some of the things that you felt like, man, you know what would be really cool in an RPG? I mean, you don't have to name names when it comes to the competitors on the market, but what did you feel like at the time you needed to bring into the world that wasn't already there? Um, I don't know. Nick and I have been playing RPGs uh, for probably the better part of 15 years together. So we've tried a bunch of different systems. And I feel like something we always we always really liked about things was just the, the community of storytelling part of it, like doing badass stuff around the table and not necessarily, you know, like conforming to all the rules that were that were set. So a lot of the crunchier systems that we found, like just didn't let us feel powerful and epic enough from character creation kind of like kind of feel like some of the rules were kind of getting in the way of letting us to really play the game we wanted to and really make the characters in the universe we wanted to make so sagas kind of we want a little bit more rules light on it and a little more um creativity heavy a little more storytelling heavy um i think that allowed us to do a lot of things we wanted to do that we couldn't do in previous systems so tell me about the core system itself. Like, is this a D20 system? Are you using several different types of dice? Are you doing 2D6 on most skill checks? Just give me some of the fundamental mechanics so that way we have a baseline for the audience. So this is a D100 system. Um, we call it the rollover system. Basically, the player makes all of the rules in the system. Um, at any point, the Scald, which is our term for a GM, will say, okay, you want to do this. All right, give me a whatever check at a rollover of 50. You roll a D100, you add whatever the relevant skill is. If you roll over the rollover, you're successful. Uh, the core mechanic, one of the things that's really set our game apart and has sort of differentiated it from a lot of other systems is that if you look back into Norse mythology and Norse religion, how do Viking warriors go to Valhalla? By dying in battle. So one of the first things that we wrote for Sagas was an ability called With Joy I Cease, 
where any character on their turn can choose to sacrifice themselves to kill whomever they're fighting. Okay. So if you know you're about to go, like if you're down to a couple of hit points, because in our system, zero hit points is dead. Dead is dead. You don't normally come back. Yeah, there's no there's no fixing dead. Yeah. So if you know that you're about to go anyway, you can kind of go out on your own terms. Um, we've seen that used in some really cool ways. We've seen players either save their entire party by sacrificing themselves to kill the big bad guy we've seen players with two hit points left decide not to use that ability and live we've seen players with a few hit points left decide not to use that ability and get pounded into the dirt like a -a whack-a-mole the next turn is that irrespective of whatever type of enemy that you're fighting like you could be fighting the big bad and as long as i sacrifice myself i take them down we have a couple caveats. So immortals require two people to use that ability. So <laughs> okay. if you're fighting if you're fighting an immortal, then it you only take half their hit points. And then we also just because we wrote Ragnarok, we have um, what we call an epic tagline, which is not really very many monsters, where it's just a sum of hit points. But by and large, most of the creatures you're fighting, yeah. Um, and we encourage people, we have something at the beginning of the book that we call the spirit of the game, basically encouraging people not to just cheese and kind of have a revolving door of characters because again it's about telling a story and if you're trying to win you know what what is basically a collaborative imagination game i think we think you're doing it wrong yeah but there are some other in-game you know incentives to keep your character alive um you know there's a settlement system in this in this system so you might actually be the yarl of a town but if you go ahead and pull the plug on your character you know, you, you're not going to come back and still be the king of that town or whatever. Um, there might be artifacts that are specifically tied to your character. If you die and your your friends try to steal them off your body, it's going to piss off the Valkyries and Odin's going to send them for you, which is not a fight that you want to have. No. So there are some still incentives to keep characters alive. It's not like, you know, everyone's going to be cheesing themselves to uh, to kill all the monsters. But it does create that just a really cool dynamic in the game. And like Nick said, if you're going to be a good Viking, you got to get to Valhalla somehow. And that is through death and battle. Speaking of Vikings, what was your guys' main attraction to Norse mythology for this? I mean, you could have done any number of settings. Why was that the one? It's basically the source material that everybody pulled from. We started looking through (laughs) some of the old sagas and everything. And Gandalf was a name of one of the dwarves in Svartalheim. Um, Gandalf's description from Lord of the Rings pretty much ripped exactly from Norse mythology. The Mm -hmm. big gray wanderer's hat, the staff and the cloak. So we just realized this is where all the fantasy lore that we love came from originally. Like, let's go back to the source. Yeah, there are a couple degrees of separation. But yeah, we have dozens of other examples because Tolkien was a huge fan of Norse mythology himself. He actually, as a philologist, translated a number of the different stories. So the fact that those found their way into his fiction is not surprising. But then D&D based most of their you know, the things that we sort of hold as pillars of the fantasy RPG community came from D&D, which came from Tolkien, which came from the Norse sagas. So we kind of just went back to the source with that, like Dom was saying. Yeah, for anyone who's wanting to really dive deep into this, you can find Tolkien's translation of Beowulf and a lot of like extra essays on Beowulf that he did. And if nothing else, anytime that I can bring up Tolkien and mention, like, check out his, his lecture on fairy stories, which is essentially his defense of fantasy as a legitimate genre before people were even defending fantasy as a legitimate genre is a, is a great way to go. Now, the thing about Viking stuff 
and, and Norse mythology and popular culture and media right now is that it's hot, right? You know, there there's tons of properties that are basing themselves off of Norse mythology, whether it's the show Vikings, which is trying to go for a semi more realistic take, um, or semi, semi. That's why I had the caveat in it. Yeah. Um, or you know, it, it's any number of board games that have come out recently. You have uh, Feast for Odin, Champions of Midgard, uh, Reavers of Midgard. There, there's just more and more property coming out, and then there's of course all kinds of popularity in uh, film and Marvel comics has exploded into the dominant force that it is. And that for a lot of people, that's their introduction to Norse mythology, which I I'm kind of happy that a Jack Kirbyism has tainted the minds of what people think of a very important and ancient culture. Um, mm. I guess maybe not happy is the right word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's interesting. Um, because I like Jack Kirby so much, but w- what do you guys do to set this apart and not just be part of the one more Viking thing? It can be difficult to say. I think, like I said, though, with Joy I See's thing is big for RPGs because a lot of RPG characters and a lot of RPG players are very risk averse when it comes to something that will sacrifice the character that they've could have been playing for months. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of ways that we set ourselves apart, uh, We tried to think of something like Dom said, a little more rules light, a little more story heavy. So just ways that different powers have different rules assigned to them, but just encouraging players to kind of make those things their own. Because like you said, there are only so many ways that you can, there are only so many iterations of the sagas and the gods and the ways that you can interact with basically what are thousand year old properties, right? Like I'm not necessarily going to do anything original with them, but what we can do is, especially with an RPG is give our players the ability to take those old things and make them kind of new again by adding a story that's their own, you know, cause Ragnarok is basically always going to go down the same way. Mm-hmm. Ragnarok was our first stretch goal. Some of the most fun I've had writing something in a long time. Cause I got to kill everybody. <laughs> so basically using that as an example, we, what we do with Ragnarok in the book is what happens with Ragnarok in the Eddas. But the fact that players are able to help influence that old story and kind of be boots on the ground for that, we hope will make it feel a little more original. You know, like the ways that you interact with the immortal beings and with other Vikings and with people on the continent, with the gods themselves, those characters are not necessarily new and interesting. Although I think the art in our book helps to differentiate them from maybe more traditional art and more traditional depictions. Let me just stop you right there and ask about that art. I, I need to deviate because your guys's art is effing incredible. And how did a couple first time Kickstarters who were just dreaming up ideas in a bar room end up getting this high quality of art? Do you like steal pieces from people? Do you blackmail yeah. them? What, what's the deal here? I, I married one of our artists and that was helpful. Um, okay. So our art director, Leah Porter, I am married to, she is a classically trained painter. All of the art on the Kickstarter was her. Um, All of the watercolors and acrylics and paintings of the gods were her. Our cover artist who did the metal cover, or excuse me, the book cover that basically looks like the cover of a metal album, 
um, is an animator for the show Archer on FX here in Atlanta. Weird bit of relation, he grew up down the street from my wife. They've known each other literally their whole life, and they just both happen to become insanely talented artists. Beyond that, uh, Dom found a lot of our other artists, if you kind of want to talk about them. Yeah, I mean, beyond that, it was just uh, doing internet searches for cool Viking art, and then we would, I'd, I'd find a piece, I'd find out who the artist was, we'd really liked them, we'd message them, and then all of a sudden, we've got artists from around the world literally working on our book. Um, some people from Europe, some people from South America. So, yeah, it was actually, that was a little easier than we thought it would be. Like, having, of course, Nick's wife and uh, our good friend Jamie working on it was infinitely awesome. I mean, that that got us most of the art that we needed. And then after that, it was just finding some some other cool artists online. And uh, that was that was that was pretty awesome, especially seeing as how we had the cool art director. Leah knew what she was looking at. If I brought if we brought our pieces, we were like, "Hey, is this person good or not? Are they really talented?" Because to Nick and I's untrained eye, you know, we can get wowed by some pretty good by some pretty good <laughs> sketches. But she'd look at it, and be like, ah, "I don't know, the perspective's a little off here. This person didn't really know what they're doing with lighting or whatever." And then, yeah, they just through their advice and our searching, we found all the rest of the artists. Yeah, so what Leah really wanted was something a little more vivid, right? Because you talk about the nine worlds of Norse cosmology. A lot of fantasy games, especially ones that pretend to be grittier or more character dangerous, things like that. It's a lot of browns and grays, but especially like the first piece of art that Leah did was the depiction of Odin, which is just multi, like brightly vivid contrast colored. And that was, the fir- that was the first piece she actually put out. She took a watercolor painting she did and just threw it through some digital filters, added some color to it. And that really set the tone for the rest of the art because we had some pieces commissioned. A couple of those pieces were licensed from existing pieces. But yeah, basically, I have to give all the credit to our art director and our art team. It came out looking like one of the most stunning premieres from a company that I've seen. And believe you me, having been able to uh, do this podcast and talk to so many people who have uh, kickstarted games or started their own publishing companies and bypass Kickstarter for whatever reason, like it is, is really impressive. I, I, this probably says more about me, unfortunately, that I was expecting a little bit less when I first clicked on your Kickstarter link and then went like, holy crap, like this is phenomenal. And the amount of art assets that you have to have for a quality source book for an RPG is is pretty intense, especially when you compare it to a lot of the typical board games that I'm interviewing people for. You know, you can get away with box art, maybe a couple pieces of artwork on different cards, and then someone can do a map, and that might be good enough. I mean, do you even know how many art assets you have throughout the entire thing? Somewhere between 50 and 70. Oh, dude. In in a 176-page book. So I will say that's the one area I'll give Nick and I credit is like we knew we knew how important the art was. Like as soon as we got extra money on Kickstarter, we were like, well, we know where this is all going. Like this is all going right back into into art and production value of the book because the visuals. I mean, it's it's what gets people to take a look initially, right? You see that cover and you're like, ah, oh, all right. Then I'll take a look inside and see what this has got to offer. So we just knew we'd have to have awesome art all the way through. Keep people turning pages, looking through. Get, getting interested and and really setting the tone for that universe that we're that we're trying to create, which our artists did a fantastic job doing. Speaking of creating, you guys created something that came into reality. Tell me about the experience of actually holding the book for the first time and what that meant to each of you. 
oh god look at all the typos yeah so that, <laughs> that was, was probably like, the first thing <laughs> yeah, so so uh, we were super excited we got the proofs in from the publisher and the thing is after because we put the whole thing in indesign ourselves too like so we had been looking at the book on a screen for years and years and as soon as we actually had something like once the initial shock of like holding your own creation in your hands wore off I'm flipping through and I'm like, oh, there are some glaring omissions here. <laughs> there are some huge problems just because it's, it's something that when you stare at something on a screen for long enough. We just got numb to it. Yeah. You just couldn't see it anymore. And then we're flipping through the book and I'm just like marking it. I felt like an English teacher. I'm just like, very poor. See me. So that was the first proof. But yeah, it was actually just pulling the thing out from the publisher and seeing that it was an actual real thing that we made. Um, that was really incredible. And then reality kind of set in and we had to get back to work, which hasn't really stopped. Like we hit retail and we were really proud of ourselves and that was a big moment for us. And then we said, uh oh, we still have all this work to do. Oh, yeah, now we actually now we have to sell the things. Yeah, now we have Damn. to sell it, now <laughs> we have to support it. So it's been an interesting thing where like we take these milestones, like we hit bestseller on drive through RPG. We got a distributor and like we're in a bunch of game stores now. But you have those moments and you celebrate those moments, but then you got to get back to work because just because you put the thing out doesn't mean that it's over. Yeah, that was kind of, yeah, it's, it, it was weird though. Cause it did seem like this is the culmination of two years worth of effort. This is the thing. And then Nick is right though. Like we, we got it. We made it. It was amazing. We pat ourselves in the back and we're like, all right, now we really got to get to work. Now we got to like start pitching this thing and selling it and getting it out there, getting people to know what it is and yeah, just getting the word out. Getting on podcasts, talking to people exactly. in Alaska. Getting on podcasts, exactly. Yeah, anything we can do. <laughs> and what was throughout the process, whether it was manufacturing, whether it was the development of the game itself, maybe even a specific mechanic, what do you think the, the biggest challenge that you had to overcome was? People trying to break the game, and I'm glad that we have a wide net of playtesters, because um, we wanted the game to appeal to people of all different experience levels with RPGs. So some of our playtesters were people who had never played an RPG before. Um, and then we have the people that we've played games with in our personal group who have been min-maxing for two decades. And we had to make something that appealed to both of them. So early iterations of our playtesting, we told our playtesters to break the game, because we'd rather it get broken in early playtesting than when it goes out to the public. And they ripped it and ripped it to shreds. Our first couple of playtesting sessions, it went better than I thought it would, but we still had pages of notes. Like, hey, here's how a character did untold amounts of damage while healing themselves for no cost. Should probably fix that. Yeah, balancing was probably the biggest headache for sure. Because we had an idea when we first wrote up all the powers of how much damage this should do, how much you know, of mana resources should cost them everything, and basically all those numbers went out the window in the first couple of testing sessions. It was like, all right, yeah. well, we're gonna have to rebalance all of this. What we thought were, was a good starting point was not a good starting point. So yeah, that was probably probably one of the biggest headaches. Yeah, we're both say. story guys. Neither of us are really math guys. So. Yeah, definitely bringing the math in and making the numbers make sense was the biggest problem in terms of development of the game. But it was a, you know, I think we got there. Like we've been playing it and other people have been playing it. We haven't received, we haven't heard back from anybody or discovered any horrible exploits that break the game. Yeah, so no, for no a first threats, time, no yeah. death threats from the fan base. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll call <laughs> that good. a win. <laughs> You'll take it. 
And did you guys give any considerations to like the flexibility of the system? I, I'm kind of an RPG novice. I've played a couple different systems, but uh, definitely I approach the tabletop gaming hobby much more from board games and CCGs. So with a lot of the RPGs that I've played, I've noticed... Uh, a lot of different levels of flexibility where some systems like let's say Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition there's a lot of room for you to be the really math heavy guy and and really invest in stats and the number of arrows that you're carrying at any point in time or you can really just kind of blur a lot of that stuff and make it a lot more friendly to the storyteller and that is, is such an incredible asset for someone like me who doesn't want to deal with exactly how many arrows I'm carrying at any given time. On the other hand, I've played RPGs where that's critical to the entire system that you are engaging with every single mechanic as specifically designed. The first chapter of our book contains a section called The Case Against Bookkeeping. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> where we discuss that exactly, where I think the example I use in the book is, um, you know, Gunner was fighting a giant and realized he had half a kilogram on him more than he should have had. So he realized he was encumbered, took a minus 10 to hit and died. That's not exciting. That's not that interesting. And part of our initial game design thoughts were, what do we actually want to pay attention to in the game? So where we landed with that was you have enough arrows and rope and candles and whatever else. You don't have to go shopping for an hour and a half, which has been our experience with some of the more crunchy systems where me as a DM can go get a cup of coffee while the players figure out how many pounds of rope they're carrying. That's not exciting for players, I don't think. That's really not exciting for me as a GM. Where we decided that that should matter is if you get if your boat washes up on a distant shore and there's no f life around, then maybe you start to run out of food. Mm -hmm. And so where it serves the story. Or again, like if you have a certain number of arrows and then you're out and that serves the story in a meaningful way, then keep track of it. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you think about Vikings, they, they were a nomadic seafaring people. I mean, they essentially carried most of their things with them most of the time. You, you're also adventuring in the world with a warship, with a war band of, of men and resources on your ship that are easily easily within grab, right? But Nick is saying it, it's very easy to create an environment where those things wouldn't be at reach if you want to make that an interesting story point. Like if the Scald or the, the GM running the game wants to make that an interesting story point, they can. But we kind of laid, we kind of stayed away from that, that manner of crunchiness, um, keeping up with those kind of more mundane things. But that being said, the system still does have a surprising amount of depth for people that want to really min-max their characters and create really cool skill combos amongst all the different domains of the gods. Um, I, I'm trying to. We're actually playing an in-house game right now, and I'm trying to pick all the powers that we didn't see a lot in playtesting. Some of the, like the less attractive ones, I guess, more of the supporty kinds of things. And I'm I'm making a very interesting character that I didn't think was really possible with lots of cool little combos about skills like being used in different ways so i think the crunchiness is there for people that want to explore and get into it they can min max their characters they can make really powerful combos and find interesting ways that the powers interact with each other 
but still you don't have to keep up with how many arrows you've shot because you probably have enough or how many days of rations any of that <laughs> for sure so we we've played we've played tabletop rpgs for 20 years and we still don't really keep track of that like we we agree more with you on that part of game design the case against bookkeeping the case mm-hmm. against bookkeeping yep well with having played for 20 years various tabletop rpgs surely this wasn't your first foray into trying to create an RPG of your own. Do you guys have examples of, you know, those terrible attempts that ended up getting put into a box in your closet at one point, or did you really hold off until finally this game came along? I wish I could say that we did, but yeah, some previous experience probably would have helped us along. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think aside from just like, you know, house rules for D and D and things like that, that, you know, we each have come up with from, from time to time. I think, yeah, this is, this is for sure my first foray into it. Yeah. Cause so basically what we did looking at all these different systems was, you know, we were a square peg and we found some round holes that were very close to what we were looking for, but nothing was exactly what we wanted, right? Like D&D 5e is a great system, but there are a lot of things we don't necessarily like necessarily like, or you know, agree with about it. Same for everything else that we'd played. There were a lot of systems that had a lot of strengths, but there were a lot of things that kind of pulled us out of the system. So when we were sitting and drinking beer and eating pizza, we, that's, that was the discussion that we had. You know, we're playing a certain unnamed system and we said, we like all of these things about it, but this is really taking us out. And so we said, why don't we just make our own? How much work could it be? The answer is a whole lot. It's a whole lot. (laughs) Two and a half years of the work. Yeah. So we we had that drunken conversation August 2016 and we came to retail December 2018. So if we had had some game design experience before that, we probably could have turned that around. I think the next game that we make will probably take a lot less time because now we have a little more idea of what we're doing. We've at least got an outline to fill in. <laughs> yeah. When you guys are looking at other RPGs since starting this endeavor, do you feel like you can engage in them at the same level that you used to, or is it now yeah. much more academic? Well, ours is, of course, the only RPG on the market that anybody should play. Yeah. Oh, of Natural. course. It's hard, it's hard to look beyond yeah. Midgard and all its um, greatness. So actually, what we there was a time before we hit retail, but after we had kind of produced the book, when the printer was doing their thing, that we started playing a couple other systems. And we realized how much more likely we were to kind of do what you said, kind of chop the system up and invent what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we kind of, we now that we've gone back to it, once we've designed a game from start to finish it's we're a lot more likely to chop up a system and mod it which is i assume what a lot of people do with dnd 5e and things like that before they make their own uh like you see like dms guild a lot of sort of community content for those systems um we just maybe took it and ran with it a little like instead of just modding 5e to be what we wanted it to be or Shadowrun or any of these other systems we just said you know, forget it. Let's just start from the ground up, which was definitely a lot more work. But I mean, it's something that is entirely ours and I think entirely unique at this point. Yeah, I mean, but that to be said, I guess we don't really have time to play a lot of other. Also, that (laughs) I mean, between playtesting for supplements that are going to come out for sagas and working on future publications. Yeah, there's not there's not a whole lot of time and working a full time job. Oh yeah, we also have we also have full time jobs and families. Yeah. Oh yeah. Remind me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, so, no. So I think we'd like to play a lot more systems because there's there are there's a lot of great systems on the market right now. But we just are kind of wrapped up in our own world a bit. We do definitely like make sure that we'll we'll check on some other systems from time to time to make sure we're not like ripping off any ideas that we've had independently of our own in our own think tank and our little echo chamber here between me and Nick. So we'll we'll definitely make sure we're not getting veering too close into somebody else's lane, but. We haven't really been having time to play yeah. a lot of other systems. What we call parallel thinking, the community might call plagiarism. So yeah, we exactly. want to make sure that happens. It's not fair. You don't want to have a Stairway to Heaven Spirits Taurus situation going on. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. Exactly trying to avoid that. So now what's next? Beyond just going on podcasts, beyond trying to get the word out there and getting this into retail locations, what is on the horizon for Drinking Horn Games in general? Convention circuit. Yeah. We're going to hit all the conventions we can and try to pressure people in person to buying our <laughs> Am I going to see you at PAX Unplugged this year? I wish. Um, mm. I, Maybe smaller cons. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're going to hit some of the smaller ones. We're still at a point um, in terms of the budget of our company and in terms of vacation time, etc. Um, yeah, my wife will be giving birth sometime this month, which also greatly diminishes my available time and money. First time. child? First child. All right, man. Exactly. We already. She already has a Viking hat and braids, and Dom got her her own Mjolnir. As a matter of fact, a personalized uh, hammer of Thor. A baby's first Mjolnir. Baby's first Mjolnir. It's important. Tell so, you what. But, tell you what. I, as a parent of only one child who's now four years old, I, I don't know that I, this advice will be successful for everyone. But we, from like day two of him being home had him in a bassinet right next to our game table. And we told our friends like, yo, we can't do game night at your house anymore because we got a little baby. If you want to play games and you want the two players here, come to our house. That that is, uh, that is what has already been. We've already set that ground rule. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, you're a wise man. We, we fed him, uh, and we let him sleep next to the game table. And now he sleeps through anything like Beautiful. it because he's used to dice and people shouting over like yeah. there's no way you're going to take my resources are you kidding me i'm not even in first place and we're like well of course you're not in first place now because we took your resources but you would have been you get those sneaky end game points so he's used to all of that and now standing um, any amount of uh, uh, tabletop excitement doesn't dare wake him up. That sounds like a genius idea. Yeah, train your baby to fall asleep to the sounds of dice hitting the table. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. best parenting and, and sacrifices in a long to, time. Sacrifices yeah, so we're going to kill enemies. Yeah, we're going to be sticking um, closer to Atlanta. Like we're doing Southern Fried Game Room Expo in July. We're doing a new con called Multiverse Con in October. Anything kind of within. Uh, driving distance. We applied for an any. We're not planning to go to Gen Con, but if we do get nominated and if we might win that award, which is a pretty big one, we might have to find a way to road trip up there. But so we're going to be doing that next year as we have more products and more supplements. We might look to expand to some bigger cons. Um, in the near future, we just put out sort of a six month roadmap of different adventures we'll be putting out, different rules, supplements, things to continue supporting that line. Um, we have a second RPG that we're working on that's still super secret just because it's not developed enough to talk about in a meaningful way. But yeah, so the goal is just, I mean, we kind of hit the ground running with our first RPG. It, the reception has been far and away more than I ever could have anticipated, than either of us could have anticipated. So we're just going to kind of keep nurturing that and adding products to it. 
when you yeah. sit down to look at creating a new RPG, you know, you're you're coming in with so much more information at this point. Do you try to redefine yourself? Like you're you're saying, like we want some of the the design principles that we had of sagas of Midgard, but I still want to create something that is entirely different. It isn't just like a reskin with a couple modifications. I want something that feels as new as Sagas of Midgard felt compared to everything else at that time. Um, I think it's, it, for me, it's kind of, it's somewhere in between there. We are taking some elements from Saga, some things that we liked and trying to keep them kind of somewhat similar, but we are, we are kind of also adding some new elements in. The way I see it is like Sagas of Midgard was like, it was like baby's first RPG. It was our first, <laughs> we're trying to get in there. We're trying to figure it all out. I think we made a good working so system. Don't, don't sell it too hard there, Dom. But yeah. I think <laughs> we made it, we made a great working system, but I think there's room for complexity to be added, which, you know, as you, as you make more products, as you do more things, you get better at it. I think we might change it a little bit, but I think ultimately we want to come to a system that's going to be able to be reskinned and used in lots of different ways. Um, but, but we're still working on it. Not not quite there yet. I don't know. Nick, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, so keeping some of the design elements, I think the things that we still agree upon is that we definitely like more of a storytelling aspect than a combat has begun. An eastbound train is leaving Chicago at 65 miles per hour, solved for X, which is how a lot of crunchier systems feel to me. They feel like a math problem. Um, so we want to keep sort of the theater of the mind looser feel to both combat and non-combat encounters uh, that we kept with sagas, but just add more interesting player choices, more interesting powers. One of the things that we really like to um, use when we're doing game design is that every benefit has a cost, right? I think just in general, I like that in board games too. I'm a big board gamer also, is the idea that even if it's just an opportunity cost, Everything you do is going to cost you something and you have to decide what is most beneficial. That's why like in our system, we don't just have like healing potions. I bought this. I use it. That's the end of my turn. That's boring. It doesn't necessitate any risk. It doesn't necessitate an interesting choice. So really just every action we want to have sort of an interesting choice or perhaps a drawback for the for the character to make them decide what's best for them at that moment which is a long-winded way of saying we want to keep it simple but we're yeah we're definitely we're looking but, it's going to be a yeah, whole but I feel new like there's some weight to your decisions yeah and it's going to be a whole new setting as well like we definitely start with setting rather than mechanics when we make games like we we settled on vikings for all the reasons we talked about and then we started thinking what would make a cool viking game hey what if you could just meat grinder your character and have them go out in a really cool way and then we worked from there and that's how we're approaching future projects as well. Like, what story do we want to tell, and how can we make the mechanics serve that story? Go back to the bar, get some beer, get some pizza. Oh, we've oh we've done that. Trust me, <laughs> plenty of plenty of field research is, I think, what we call it now. <laughs> well, Nick and Dom, thank you so much for coming onto the show. If people want to find out more about Sagas of Midgard, where can they go? They can go to our website, sagasofmidgard.com. Uh, we're on Twitter as uh, D Horn Games and Facebook Drinking Horn Games LLC. Um, yeah, those are all the best places to start. We're pretty active on Twitter. Uh, yeah, there's a ton of information on our website about the game. We're on Drive Through RPG. We're on Indie Press Revolution. So there are lots of ways to find out more information, including talking to us directly via social media. Um, 
I think definitely through this wonderful podcast, they've gotten plenty of good information. So we appreciate you having us. Um, yeah, yeah and that's, thanks, thanks so much. Help yeah, us get yeah. the word out. Is there like a introductory print and play or any way that people can test out the system and make them hungry for more Viking action? That's coming up very soon. Um, we are working on putting together a free quick start that'll just have the first chapter of the book, um, some sample characters, which we already have on the website, and then the first mission out of our core book which is meant to be sort of a tutorial on the rails introduction. It's a little simpler, but when you're learning something, you need it to be a little less complex. That's the one that when we run it out, we, we tend to run and people have really good um, experiences with that. So good, good intro to the system. So coming, coming soon, dot, 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 TM. There will be a quick start guide. All right. Well, I'll put it on blast and make sure everyone knows about it. And I'll retroactively put a link to that in the show notes here. So if anyone wants to just kind of stay tuned to the Cardboard Herald RSS feed or check out either my Twitter or, of course, the Drinking Horn Games Twitter in order to get your hands on that because it sounds like an awesome system and definitely something that I want to check out. So once again, Nick and Dom, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks, man. Have a good one. As always, the Cardboard Herald is a completely free service focused on spotlighting games, gamers, and game creators. You can find all of our podcasts, including the Cardboard Herald and TCBH reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website. For more recommendations and reviews, you can also head over to our YouTube channel. We do not pay to advertise the show, so please continue spreading the word, following, liking, rating, and doing all the social media things. It truly does help us out a ton. If you'd like to drop us a line and maybe have your listener mail read on air, find us on Twitter at Cardboard Herald or send us an email to CardboardHerald at gmail.com or click the contact link on our page. Once again, thank you for listening. I've been Jack for the Cardboard Herald and you keep on gaming.